This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Last week on the podcast, we talked about January the 6th, 2021, and how lots of people watching that unfold said, this looks like a country in the grip of a civil war. Well, that was precisely what the scholar Barbara F. Walter had been worrying about for quite a while. She's a political scientist at the University of California at San Diego and formerly was an advisor to the CIA, working with its Political Instability Task Force. She's now written a new book that is getting a lot of attention in the United States. It's called How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. She says that the kind of civil war that could be looming for America is not the one from the history books, not the one we know from the 1860s. Instead, it could be an era of scattered yet persistent acts of violence, bombings, political assassinations, destabilising acts of asymmetric warfare, small, loosely aligned groups of warriors who sometimes call themselves accelerationists. So that's the image she sketches that could lie in America's future. I wanted to talk to Barbara Walter about why she thinks that may be coming and what could be done to stop it. But I began by asking her about what it was like to advise the CIA. The reason I became an academic was because I really cared about trying to solve big problems. And of course, if you're at a university, you have all the time to devote to this. But the challenge is, how do you get that scholarship, what what we learn from those many hours of studying a particular problem and thinking about it? How do you get that information into the hands of policymakers who actually have a, a chance to solve it? And so in some respects, it's it's a dream when policymakers, and that could be the State Department, that could be the Department of Defense, that could be the British government, who I've also consulted for, you know, when they send, and it usually comes via email, when they send me an email asking, you know, could you come to D.C.? and give us a 15-minute briefing on X. Things like that, to me, allow me to take the scholarship that we have and then put it in the hands of people who could potentially do something about it. So it's really, I see it as um, a a real opportunity and a gift. And so your focus in the CIA was on, and, and in your work as a scholar, has been on political violence in nations around the world, whether in Sri Lanka or the former Yugoslavia. And now you have a new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. But part of your focus and what's got a lot of attention is to talk about your own country and to talk about the United States. So so that move from seeing the dangers and perils of political violence out there, what was it that happened that made you think, you know what, some of this is happening here? So what some of your listeners might not know is that the CIA is not allowed to study the United States. It's not allowed to talk about the United States. All of its efforts have to be devoted um, external to this country. And so the task of the people who are on the this task force for political instability and political violence was to come up with a predictive model that could help the U.S. government 
predict where around the world countries might begin to destabilize and experience political violence. And it turns out that only two factors were highly predictive. The first was whether a country was an anocracy, and that's a fancy term that political scientists use to describe a government that's neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. And the second and even more important factor was whether the population had broken down politically, not along ideology, so left, right, but along um, racial, ethnic, or religious lines. In 2018, I started to see what was happening in my own country, and America's democracy has declined, and it's declined quite rapidly over the last five years. And by the end of the Trump presidency, the United States was classified as an anocracy for the first time since 1800. And then, of course, I looked at the second factor, you know, is racial politics emerging? And of course, that's been happening as well. In, in 2008, white Americans were equally likely to vote for a Democrat as they were to vote for a Republican. And that was mostly because the white working class politically was more aligned with the policies of the Democratic Party. And so that's where they tended to vote. But that has shifted since 2008. Today, the Republican Party here in the United States is 90% white. This is all so fascinating because people are used to hearing these ideas about places far away. And you're saying you're watching what's happening. There's the Republican Party becoming, in effect, a kind of white faction. And then on the other hand, this word anocracy, and it's a new one on me, but really interesting that the notion of a country in this no man's land, in kind of limbo between democracy and autocracy. Now, in my head, as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, Vladimir Putin in Russia, but you were seeing this in, in your own country. And I'm interested to know, because there you were in the CIA in 2017 and 2018, were you seeing that parallel because of the man who was then in the White House, namely Donald Trump? Or is this something that's been going on in America even before this decline? Was it visible and apparent even before Donald Trump? Donald Trump is simply a symptom of, of a larger process that has been going on in this country far longer than, than his emergence. And in fact, if he hadn't emerged, somebody like him would have emerged. And if he isn't uh, reelected, if he isn't elected in 2024, there will be somebody like him on the Republican Party. So, so you could tell this entire story quite effectively without mentioning Donald Trump at all. America has these very archaic elements um, in our constitution, in our democracy, that are really unique and in some respects very undemocratic. No other liberal democracy around the world has these features, like the electoral college, like the filibuster. This just doesn't happen in other, other democracies. And the reason why we have a lot of these undemocratic features is it goes back to slavery, that we had these southern states who weren't very excited about being part of uh, the country, and they wanted to maintain as much power as they could at the state level, and they demanded a series of compromises, and those compromises exist today. That's why when you say that the on all those 
different measures, the country on the kind of democracy index is as low as it's been since 1800. In a way, I thought when you said that, well, that's partly because so much of the machinery it has is from 1800. Yes, it still yes. has some of the same equipment as it yes. had two centuries ago. So the second thing that that has happened long, long before Trump is what what scholars have called the rise of the imperial presidency. When our democracy was was created, the founding fathers created three branches of government that were supposed to serve as checks and balances on each other. And the main check on the executive branch, the presidency, was Congress, the legislature. And what has been happening for decades is that the executive branch here in the United States has been getting stronger relative to all the other branches. And this became probably most obvious in 2019, when Congress was demanding papers from the White House because they were they were investigating the president and, and possibly considering impeachment. They were issuing subpoenas to the president and his team, and the White House refused to deliver everything. That it shouldn't happen. <laughs> that tells you where power in this country lies, and it means that it's disproportionately standing in, in, in a single individual in the White House, and that is bad. So, of course, it's such a big thing in, for an American particularly to even use the phrase civil war because of America's very particular history and Americans, I think, and perhaps even people outside the country, when they hear the words, they do imagine the America of the 1860s and they picture Gettysburg and they picture Abraham Lincoln and so on. Is that a big hindrance for you in terms of explaining what you're trying to explain to, uh, to your fellow Americans? And in a way, if it's not going to be like that, or even like Spain in the 1930s, civil wars that people imagine, sketch out for us what you imagine if it comes to it, an American 21st century civil war would look like. So if you think of what happened recently in Iraq or, or Syria, um, there were hundreds, hundreds of factions, armed factions operating on both sides of those wars. And they were sometimes pursuing similar goals, sometimes different goals, but they all wanted to capture power. That is typical of the 21st century war. What we're increasingly seeing is a strategy called leaderless resistance, where the rebels are not organizing hierarchically. That's too easy to infiltrate, too easy to stop. They rely often very heavily on terrorism. That terrorism is often not directed at soldiers. It's directed at civilians, the opposition, or uh, minority groups, if, if, if one of the things that you're, you're fighting against is um, a change in demographics. This is the type of 21st century um, civil war that we are seeing around the world and that we would likely see here in the United States if it were to happen. And does that mean the events of January the 6th, 2021, which we talked about on this podcast last week with Congressman Jamie Raskin, who was there and who, who became a central player in that whole story, does that mean that January the 6th, 2021, should be viewed as the opening shots in this new civil war? Because it fits the description you just gave. I actually wouldn't say it was the opening shot. It was one of a series of domestic terror events that we have been observing here in this country. And that has been increasing 
since the mid 2000s. You know, one of the things that most people don't know is that in 2009, the Department of Homeland Security issued a report, and it was written by a, a guy named Daryl Johnson. And Daryl Johnson in 2007 began going online and tracking what he saw was the rise of far-right militias. And uh, two years later, he issued a report, basically a warning that these are growing dramatically. They are organizing online. And the report was almost immediately squelched by Republican leadership and also by the o Obama administration, they 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 put it away, and it you know it boggles the mind. And the reason they didn't want to get it to get out because it was going to anger some, some people. It was going to anger a subset of the white population. It was and and these people are important constituencies, especially the Republican Party. So we've known this has been growing. It, it's it's interesting the extent to which this is the coming civil war, if you like, centres on the same dynamic that was part of or driving even the first civil war in the 19th century, and that is race. And you mm. say that when you talk about the, the term factionalism, and I know you use it in a very specific sense when a political party becomes not about ideology and what it believes, but in a way who it speaks for and which ethnic group it speaks for. Back then in the 1860s, you know, crudely put, it was about, it turned on race and slavery. Is race the common element here of the actual civil war that happened in the 19th century? And the one that you say could be, you're warning, you're not predicting, but could be with us in the 21st century? Yes, race underlies this. The U.S. is going through this grand transformation, demographic transformation. The U.S. is going to be the first white majority country to go through it. And that transformation is from a country that is majority white to a country that is majority non-white. Here in the United States, that it, that's expected to occur by 2045. And I think, again, for a subset of the white population, this is deeply threatening. And they see it as their patriotic duty to do uh, anything necessary to keep it that way. And so I, you know, when I study other civil wars around the world, um, especially ethnic civil wars, one of the things that we do know is who tends to start these wars. It's the groups that were once politically dominant and are in decline. One thing I think will be of great interest is because it's obviously, by definition, completely different from the 1860s or any other civil war in history. And that is the role that social media is playing and is likely to play. And you describe it as an accelerant, which is a striking word. People know what accelerants do when you chuck them on flames. Describe for us what you think is happening with social media and, and, and what role it might play in turning what is currently a febrile situation perhaps into uh, something we would recognize as civil war. Scholars and researchers cannot definitively say that social media is causing a decline in democracy around the world. We can't say definitively because companies like Facebook have jealously, jealously, jealously guarded their data. So we know, for example, here in the United States, um, our intelligence agencies discovered that there was a conscious 
attempt by Vladimir Putin to influence the 2016 elections. And he was doing this via social media. And Putin's a really smart guy. He understands that there is no way that he can hurt these strong liberal democracies economically. But he knows how to use propaganda. You know, social media, which here in the United States is unregulated, is the perfect backdoor way for him to undercut democracy. And then we have our own ethnic entrepreneurs, that's what we call them, who also can benefit by by convincing people that they are threatened, that they need to band together, that immigration and immigrants are are rapists and murderers and and they need to do something about it. And yet the people you're describing in that last category often will be on the right of uh, American politics, some of them in the Republican Party. If you were to ask them, no one in the Republican Party would ever say they're advocating for a civil war. Nobody's talking that language. Does that have any impact on the uh, salience of the case you're making, that actually the people who you would say are posing this potential threat would themselves run a mile from that suggestion? I I agree. The Republican leadership obviously doesn't want a civil war. This would be disastrous for the United States. Uh, You know, even an insurgency, you know, would hurt our economy deeply. But extremists on the ideological fringe don't care. They, by definition, are extreme and willing to use extreme measures. And so the Republican leadership, they're, they're just thinking about strategies to get themselves into power and to maintain power and and ethnic identity ethnic nationalism fear-mongering helps them get there but it also helps the extremists and that's that's what's dangerous now your book barbara walter is called how civil wars start but the subtitle is and how to stop them so let's talk about that those people who are hearing this perhaps in the United States, and are, you know, gripping the arms of their chair in fear after they've heard what you're describing. What can they do to avert a civil war in their country in the 21st century? So people who study civil wars around the world and they look for patterns, they know the warning signs, whether a country is a, is, is a partial democracy and whether politics in that country are organizing themselves around identity. And so I think one of the most important things is simply to to get this message out, have people understand what the real warning signs are so that we can do something to change it before we start hearing machine gun fire in the hills. And then I I do think an, an easy fix here in the United States is simply regulate social media. We regulate the food industry. We regulate television. We regulate all sorts of things that are deemed harmful potentially to society. And, and we should be regulating media. And I, I don't actually advocate censoring information. Put whatever material you want online. But don't allow the tech companies to design algorithms and recommendation engines that push the most incendiary, the most extreme messages into the hands of the population because we know this is dividing us. And then of course the last thing is is citizens, you know, should push 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 and that could include peaceful protests, push their politicians to institute democratic reforms. We know that full liberal democracies do not experience civil war. And so if the United States was a really healthy, strong 
um, true democracy, uh, the risk would go away. Towards the end of your book, you tell us that you and your husband are actually or have started contemplating leaving the United States. And I'm bound to ask just, have you made a decision about that? And and what would actually make the decision for you? Would there be a last straw that would make you say, enough, we have to go somewhere else? We're not going to leave. We love this country desperately. It has been so good to us. We love the rich diversity of this country. Um, we live in a state that is already minority white, and it is a wonderful place to live. And which state is that? I live in California. And so we really, truly believe that it's our duty, knowing what we know and um, loving this country as much as we do, um, to help America make this transition. Our origin uh, motto was e pluribus unum, out of many, out of many one. And that's, that's what we want to help to achieve. Barbara, we always ask our guests a what else question. This is very much related because you're arguing in the book as well that the solution is not to abandon democracy, but to improve it. So how about this? This week, Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, we've talked about them a lot on this podcast, have once again uh, been condemned by their fellow Democrats, including the President, Joe Biden, for opposing reform of the filibuster. You mentioned the filibuster. It's that tactic that, I mean, it's a a bit of procedure in the Senate that does give a lot of power to the minority in the Senate. It means the Republicans can delay the passage of uh, democratic legislation, capital D. So, So what about on that? When it comes to that work of improving democracy, as you put it, rather than abandoning it, do you think that, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are on the side of you know, clinging to a democratic protection for minority rights, or are they standing in the way of improving democracy? I I don't think there's going to be enough votes to to really get any real democratic reform because the Republicans have no incentive to agree to any of it. So I actually, if I look down the the game tree and I think about how you know how is reform possible here. There's two things that individual citizens will need to do. They will need to vote in higher numbers. The 2020 election had an enormous turnout. I think it was the highest in 120 years. And still 80 million eligible American voters didn't vote. So we need to have those voters voting. If they were to go to the polls, we would have a different set of people in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And then perhaps we can get reform then. And then the second thing would be to to get on the street and protest. Um, and you can imagine if there were sustained popular protests here in the United States demanding political reform, it would be harder and harder for both Republicans and Democrats um, not to make any changes. The book is called How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. It is by Barbara F. Walter, and it's available now. Barbara, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And that is all from me for this week. If you haven't, by some chance, had quite enough of hearing me going on, you could tune in to our sister podcast, Today in Focus, our Thursday episode talking about what might turn out to be British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Day of Reckoning. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening.
This is The Guardian.